All right, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. The topic, David recognized that the Lord was working to perfect him in the present and that he would complete the work in the future. The title of our message, I'm practically perfected in every way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this place. We thank you for this time. We appreciate the fellowship. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be equipped to do ministry in our homes, out in the world, Difficult times in which we live, Lord, we ask that uh, we would have uh, an answer to all that would ask us of the hope that is within us and that we would even seek out those uh, who don't ask us. We want to be used, Lord, by you uh, to comfort and show the compassion of Jesus Christ. And we study your word, Lord. We uh, want to know it uh, because it uh, strengthens the inner man. And that's what we need so desperately in these last days. I pray that we would leave this place with hope and joy and that that would be contagious among Christians and non-believers as well. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Writers call them time jumps. It's when the story they are telling jumps forward or backward in time. The Christmas movie season is upon us. You'll want to blow the dust off of your diehard. Uh, but you will likely encounter a new or old version of Dickens, A Christmas Carol. You'll jump with Ebenezer Scrooge to Christmas past and to Christmas future. The things Scrooge witnesses in the past and the future radically change his life in the present. Psalm 138 seems to have been written by David at his coronation, on account of which he worships the Lord who had made good his promises to him. The psalm has time jumps within it. There's a jump to the future. In verses four and five, we read, all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. I don't think that's happened during David's reign, and it hasn't happened yet. It sounds like something that the Bible says will happen in the millennial kingdom of God on the earth after Jesus Christ's second coming. The psalm time jumps to the past. In verse 3, David spoke of a day when I cried out and you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. David chose to utilize time jumps to underscore what he would say in verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. God had begun a great work in David in the past. God was performing that work in the present and he would perfect that work in the future. Same with us. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. When you receive Jesus Christ, God saves you. Every day after that, he works to sanctify you, to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. At the resurrection and rapture of the church, your salvation will be complete as you receive your glorified body. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus will complete the work he has begun in you despite supernatural opposition. And number two, Jesus will complete the work he has begun in you despite human opposition. So let's take a look at supernatural opposition in verses one, two, and three. God's great work of grace in changing us does not go unchallenged. 
we can expect opposition, and not just from other human beings. As Nick Fury said, we learned that not only are we not alone, but we are hopelessly, hilariously outgunned. We're introduced to supernatural beings in the unseen realm in verse one. A Psalm of David, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. This Hebrew word translated gods is the word Elohim. Isn't that the name of Almighty God? Well, it turns out, no, it's not the name of Almighty God. One resource says the word Elohim occurs more than 2,500 times in the Hebrew Bible with meanings ranging from gods in a general sense, as in Exodus, where it describes the gods of Egypt, to specific gods, such as Chemosh, the god of Moab, to demons, seraphim, cherubim, and other supernatural beings, and even to the spirits of dead humans, such as when Samuel is, uh, comes forth from the grave. Of those 2,500 times, the word is used about 2,000 times as references to Yahweh, the almighty God of Israel. Satan, fallen angels, demons, these two are Elohim. Any being who lives in the unseen realm is an Elohim. The word is a place of residence term. What all they have in common is that they are inhabitants of the spiritual world. And so anyone who is in what scholars are now calling the unseen realm or the spiritual world, you know, where angels and uh, devils are, uh, even, the, even uh, in the book of Samuel, when he was conjured up by the witch of Endor and he appeared, the word uh, Elohim is applied to him because he is now in that unseen realm. It's a term of residence. The almighty God, the God of Israel, Yahweh is an Elohim, but notice while Yahweh is an Elohim, no Elohim is Yahweh. They are created beings. They are subordinate beings. The Bible always makes it clear that no other is like him. If you want more on this, check out our study in this series on Psalm 82, which has a lot more detail. But returning to our verse, he says that he would praise God with all his hearts before the gods singing praises to you. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense that he would, if you think gods are human beings or uh, are they false gods or just idols? So he's talking about supernatural beings. At his coronation, David's heart was filled with praises, and this was just the song for the occasion. Exactly who the Elohim in the audience were is not specified. But since later in this song he refers to crying out and needing help, I think we can safely say that evil Elohim were involved. You'd expect interference against David and Israel, there are Elohim at work behind the scenes of all the nations of the world. Here are two references that bear this out. Prophet Daniel was praying. The angel Gabriel was dispatched to give Daniel information about the last days. Upon arriving, Gabriel explained, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. A supernatural being, an Elohim, was a prince assigned to Persia, and he sought to interfere with God's plans and purposes for Daniel and for Israel. Now, I don't know how angels fight. I don't know if they grapple with each other, you know, just wrestling and trying to pin each other. I don't know if they have weapons. Um, 
maybe they insult each other. I don't know, you know, until, but uh, Gabriel's on his way to see Daniel. And for 21 days, this other being uh, hinders him. And so finally he taps out and says, I need Michael, the archangel. And Michael comes and says, I'll, I'll handle this. You, you go on your way. And so uh, he's called the prince of Persia. He's not the human prince of Persia or the king of Persia. He's a supernatural being that is interfering with the things of God. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read that Satan's throne was in the city of Pergamum. Now, scholars say this is just a reference to a throne of Zeus that was there. Uh, and that could be, but I see no reason not to take it literally. We know that there are principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in, in, on the earth, and they have to hang out somewhere. And perhaps at, at the time, Pergamum was a place where they had a headquarters. Satan has principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world in key positions behind the scenes of the nations in order to interfere with God's plan in general specifically for Israel, and now for the church and for you. If you stop there, it's terrifying. In a battle with these beings by ourselves, we are hopelessly and hilariously outgunned. But we're not by ourselves, are we? Not by a long shot. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Greater is he that is in us than the Elohim against us. Verse 2, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. The temple wasn't built in David's lifetime. He was either referring to the tabernacle or he was time jumping a little bit to the future temple that he knew would be built. The attribute of God that was especially on David's heart when he penned this psalm under inspiration was loving kindness. David mentioned it in connection with truth. God's loving kindness is a truth to be held despite any feelings or situations to the contrary. The Lord's loving kindness was just as true during the years of David's exile as they were at his coronation. All of God's attributes are truth, regardless my circumstances or my experiences. That's a, a tough one, but it's a, it's a tough lesson that the Lord teaches us. So you understand what I mean? It wasn't that God ceased to be loving kind for a while, and then he said, okay, I'm going to turn that back on and, and go ahead and make you the king, I promise. David had experienced God's loving kindness uh, every day of his life uh, unless he was backslidden. And all of the attributes of God are like that. And sometimes I think part of the lesson or, or part of what the Lord wants you to understand in a particular situation is one or two or several attributes of his that you can say, yeah, th these, this is still true. Uh, even though I'm suffering or even though I'm going through this affliction. In fact, it's more true because I've drawn closer to the Lord. Uh, you know, a lot of times people just flippantly say, well, I feel like the Lord has abandoned me. Well, that's what I'm talking about. That's impossible. He, he can't abandon you, not for a second, not for a millisecond, not for the blink of an eye. And so we're to trust God's word and know he is present know that he is loving and kind, know that he is merciful, know that he is grace for us. All of his attributes that we see in the Bible are true and they are always ours at any time. It says here, you have magnified your word above all your name and that needs a better translation. Derek Kidner writes, the meaning of this phrase can only be that God has fulfilled his promise in a way that surpasses what he had revealed about himself. 
And here in David's case, for a long time, more than a decade, at least God's promise that David would be king seemed improbable, if not impossible. Yet here he was, despite all uh, human and supernatural interference. Does it seem strange that evil Elohim would be in a heavenly audience hearing David praise the Lord? We get a glimpse of something like this in the beginning of the book of Job. In the International Standard Version, it puts it like this. One day, divine beings presented themselves to the Lord and Satan accompanied them. Strange as it may be, there was Satan in heaven before God with other Elohim. And and you remember the story. Satan said, I want to destroy your servant Job. And God says, you're never going to be able to do that. And he set some parameters. Uh, And at the end of that, they don't do a big thing about it. But I I think probably some of the good Elohim looked over at Satan and said, nanny, nanny. (laughs) I mean, there's there's stuff going on in this realm that we don't understand. Uh, And I remember the first time I read Job, it wasn't the, the suffering of Job that was a problem for me. It was the fact that Satan was still in heaven and that he was talking to God and that he was giving a review of where he'd been. Uh, It it seemed odd to me because, of course, we grow up thinking that Satan is thrown down to earth and becomes the king of hell and has demons tormenting people. Uh, Then you read the Bible and you find out that the lake of fire was made for the devil and his angels. There is no kingdom in hell. Uh, You know, it isn't a matter of the devil tormenting you. It's a matter of him being tormented and humans being tormented. Uh, you know, who have rejected Christ. And so it's very, very interesting as David is singing to the Lord, worshiping him for bringing him to the throne. And and when you read about all the opposition to Israel in the Old Testament that that devils bring, what a moment of victory this must, must be. And just imagine their disgust as David sings the praises of the Lord. Uh, for all of his providence in bringing him to that point. They almost had David a bunch of times. Uh, And they watched him backslide and all of these things happened. But here he was, thanks to the loving kindness of God, the king of Israel. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. David cried out and God answered it by strengthening what we would call the inner man. That strengthening of his soul produced the boldness David needed in order to wait on the uh, promises of God. Though he stumbled along the way, he never lost sight of the Lord's promises. The Bible indicates that Christians will one day rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. Right now, we seem more like David in exile, hunted down as fugitives by the malevolent supernatural beings in Satan's army. Pray that God grant you the strength of soul by his indwelling Holy Spirit, and then be bold in believing all of his promises to you. Now, secondly, in verses four through eight, Jesus will complete the work he has begun in you despite human opposition. Our physical battleground isn't the unseen realm. It's at home, it's at work, it's out in the world at large. The world is currently held captive by the God of this world, Satan. That's what he's called in the New Testament. He's called the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this age. Without the need for possession, he takes captive non-believing human beings, enlisting them to do his will to interfere in your life. And so you don't, uh, you know, a non-believer doesn't have to be possessed by a demon to do Satan's will. They're blinded, they're non-spiritual, they're carnal, uh, they're natural men and women, and the, the devil can influence them in certain ways to interfere with Christians and the church, with Jews, with Israel, with whatever he wants to attack. 
Some things defy explanation apart from supernatural interference. Uh, most of us are logical, reasonable people, and when we hear about something or see something happening, we want to figure out what's going on. And so many incredible, nonsensical things go on in the world. Uh, things are happening right now on account of COVID-19. A California judge ordered San Diego to reopen strip clubs while the county carries on a crackdown against churches because of the First Amendment. Now, don't even try to figure out the logic. That's insane. I, I don't even know how something like that gets to court. There's something supernatural going on behind the scenes of a decision like that. that that's an unseen realm kind of a thing. And there's a lot of stuff like that going on right now. I mean, as every, the chaos, the confusion in our world today, the stupid things that people are suggesting, uh, they don't necessarily have any basis in fact or logic or reason. And therefore, I say that they're supernatural. For the sake of argument, let's say the governing authorities have no malice in targeting churches. Don't you think that devils do have malice against the church? and that they want to take advantage of this opportunity to close churches. If you were a devil, if you were a demon, a, a ruler, a principality, or power, wouldn't you be excited that you could see churches all across America closed and people meeting online where in 10 seconds they can turn you off and that would be the end of the word of God uh, on the airwaves? I mean, this is a big thing. And so I... I I mean, some of the government leaders, I mean, might be in a conspiracy. They might hate churches. I don't know. But it doesn't have to. Behind the scenes, it is. It is. It's a spiritual warfare. It's a supernatural warfare. Obviously, they want to destroy the church. Uh, and, and they'll do anything they can to do it. Now, regardless what happens, we know the church continues, whether above ground or underground. It, it, it only gets stronger. Uh, but I think you understand my main, the only point I'm trying to make is that sometimes you need to take a step back and just say, hey, this is supernatural. This is spiritual. There's something weird going on here that defies human explanation. And it has to do with these malevolent beings. An early church father said, nothing ordinarily so repairs the soul and makes a person better as a good hope of things to come. David's good hope of things to come begins in verse four. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. That's gotta be future, right? I can't remember a time in human history when all the kings of the earth praised the Lord or when all of the earth heard the word of God. That time is coming. At the end of the revelation, the apostle John wrote concerning the new Jerusalem, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. It's reasonable to ask, how does hope of the future help me now? Hold that thought while we look at some of these remaining verses. Verse 6, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. The lowly would be believers who are being opposed. The proud are opposition. The proud seem to be on top. They seem to be in power. Believers are oppressed, sometimes with no end in sight. 
David, no stranger to this kind of treatment on the earth, his own family excluded him when the prophet Samuel came to their house to anoint the next king of Israel. This was a big deal when the prophet came to visit you. I mean, it was scary because these guys were, you never knew what these guys were going to say, uh, but it was a big deal. And so uh, he had come to anoint the next king of Israel, came to the house of Jesse, and uh, he lines up all of his sons in a descending order uh, while David, the youngest, is out tending the sheep. And so a little bit of how David was treated at home. His brothers mocked him when David expressed shock that no one would accept the daily challenge against Goliath. He brought them some provisions, brought their captain some provisions. Goliath lumbered out and he challenged the Israelites to a champion battle. Whoever wins, win, you know, that battle wins. And David is like, he's a young boy and he's incredulous. He goes, why are we still here? Anybody can go out there against him. Saul should, but anybody can. We're Israel. What is wrong with you guys? And his brothers uh, mocked him. Of course, you know the end of that story. King Saul threw spears at David, then chased him, seeking his life. And so David understood opposition. But all the while he held to the hope of the future God had promised him. There, as a boy in his father's household, he had been anointed king, and he knew that he would be king. The Lord on high condescends to involve himself against those who oppose us. Think of it. The Almighty God is for you. The Apostle Paul boldly said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Of course, right after Paul said that, he rattled off quite a list of beings who are against us. What then gives us the victory now, not just in the future? When verse 7, David says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The next time someone does ask, how are you? You know, I, I have a problem with that. I don't, you know, I don't like asking people. I still do it. I say, hey, how are you? And I realize I don't really care at that moment. I'm not going to stop and listen. It's just, you know, you're, hey, how are you? How are you? You know, uh, it's, it's an empty. So, in, but if somebody asks, how are you? Tell them, I walk in the midst of trouble. That's a great one. Say, how are you doing today? I walk in the midst of trouble. And then you walk off. <laughs> Let them wonder what it is. I walk in the midst of trouble could describe a believer pretty much any time. During times you might feel free from trouble. Plans are being made against you by the ruler of this age's accomplices. So, you know, some people, your life is just all trouble all the time. Or at some point in your life, it becomes something that dominates you and, and you're just going to be afflicted for the rest of your life. But a lot of us experience times of trial and then through the trial, it's like, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. Everything's going my way. Finances are good. I got a good job. My family's, you know, whatever it would be and stuff. And then you find out that there's some kind of a 10-year strategy that's being planned against you behind the scenes. And so we can always say that we are uh, in a time of trouble. So here's this word, revive. It has a lot of possible meanings, including preserved from the wrath of my enemies. Your ultimate enemy was death. I say it was because death was defeated by Jesus as he died on the cross, and then he rose from the dead. If you are in Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You have no uh, quarrels with death. The, he, he's not an enemy anymore. In some ways, he's a friend. 
uh, I don't want to go too far with this, and, but uh, all of you know people, Christians, who you thought, Lord, just take them right now. Why do they have to suffer another day? Just take them. And in that sense, death is, is a friendly thing, an exciting thing, a wonderful thing, something that we can look forward to. To live in Christ means, among other things, that everything he promises you is available. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. All that you require to live out your life in godliness is yours. Now, I ask you to hold a question. How does hope of the future help me now? Hope in your future revives you. It breathes new life in you by the Holy Spirit. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Sorry, lefties, but the right hand in the Bible is the power hand. I like that I'm saved by God's right hand and that my enemies can easily be defeated by his left. This is like him saying the Lord can beat my enemies with his right hand tied behind his back. It's so easy. That's why you don't want to get lost in this. Like you're, some of you are still thinking, I don't get this Elohim stuff. Is Gene saying there's a pantheon of gods? No. These guys live in this unseen realm, but God could take them all with his right hand tied behind his back. They're nothing like him. He's the creator. And so verse eight, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. If the Lord will perfect that which concerns me, why ask him not to forsake the work? Do you have a project that you started but have yet to finish? Maybe you have no time or you ran out of money or resources or you just lost interest in it. You are a project that the Lord started but has yet to finish. In his case, he has all the time in the world and he has unlimited resources for Project Gene. More importantly, he cannot and will not ever lose interest in me. And so David, when he said, don't forsake me, he was expressing a proper impatience for the Lord to accelerate his work in his life. He wanted the Lord to be working, working in his life. Albert Barnes said, he will complete what he has begun. He will not begin to interpose in my behalf and then abandon me. He will not promise to save me and then fail to fulfill his promise. He will not encourage me and then cast me off. He will complete what he begins. He will not convert a soul and then leave it to perish. Grace will complete what grace begins. Truth is, progress in making us and molding us is often interrupted not by the Lord, but by us. Charles Ryrie said, a Christian of longer standing may not be spiritual, not because he has had insufficient time, but during the years of his Christian life, he has not allowed the Holy Spirit to control him. David had examples of this in his life. For example, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for her husband to be killed, he halted his spiritual progress. He would say of that time, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away by my groaning all day long. My strength was exhausted as in a summer drought. David repented and David was revived. He experienced that the Lord's mercy endures forever. It means he won't quit. He won't give up on us. He will finish what he has started. Some of you may have experienced this. You were walking with Jesus in the word. You were in prayer. 
you were in fellowship, and then you fell away for weeks or months or years, sometimes for decades. The moment you repented, the Lord's mercy was abundant. You're being practically perfected in every way. Choose to depend more and more on the indwelling Holy Spirit and you will stay revived.